Israel was now beginning their endeavor into the promised land. You've seen this uh, picture, this map picture before, but um, you see how Jericho was kind of the entryway or the doorway into Canaan. However, apart from God, there was absolutely no way that this possession of the land of Canaan was going to happen. Last week, we talked about the fortifications of the city. If you weren't with us last week, um, or if you were watching online and couldn't see some of the pictures that we showed, I'm going to show you some of those again. But you remember we talked last week, um, and, and quick time out, could I get the back screen on, um, just for, by point of reference? Um, as we talked about last week, there was a stone retaining wall that was about 12 to 15 feet high as you went up the mound of, to the city of Jericho. A stone retaining wall covered the base of the city mound. And when you got towards this, up the city mound, there was a mud brick wall that was about 6 feet thick and 20 to 26 feet high at the, from the bottom of the mound. And then as you kept going, at the top of the city mound was another mud brick wall that was about 46 feet high from the ground level outside the retaining wall. We can see the next picture uh, to get a view of these two walls. How could Israel ever expect to gain a foothold onto the promises of God when they were faced with what seemed like an impossible task? When you look at archaeological pictures concerning um, the city of Jericho, um, you'll, we'll go to another picture. If, if we can't get that back slide, that's fine. These are the most two important. There we go. So you'll see, this, this is what the city of Jericho looked. As they marched around the city, it was uh, an area, the top of the city was about nine acres of, of uh, travel around the city. That looks like it would be a pretty tough city to take possession of, doesn't it? We see another picture of the city, just from a slightly different point of view. The walls of Jericho were very formidable, and not to mention that, but once you get into the walls, the warriors that you would face. But as we talked about last week, God was once again bringing Israel to the end of themselves so that His power and His glory would shine. And today we're going to continue looking at five lessons that the Battle, battle of Jericho provides from, uh, to us from chapter 6. And last week we looked at the, uh, the first two lessons. From verses 1 to 5 we saw that it is the Lord who brings the victory. In verses 1 to 5, it's the messenger of God, the commander of the Lord's army, that instructs Joshua 
as to how they are to take possession of Jericho, what the battle plan is. And it was a silly battle plan, but yet it was doable. To go into the city on their own was very undoable for Israel, but it was very doable for the soldiers, for the nation to simply obey what God commanded and to let God do the rest. That's all that God calls us to do, right? He doesn't call us to somehow get results. He doesn't call us to finish the task of whatever it is that God has planned. He calls us to simply follow and to be obedient. Then the second lesson we looked at was from verses 6 to 14. God's people must follow God's leader. We see Joshua then receives instructions from the commander of the Lord, and he then instructs the people, and the people obey. And as we got to the end of verse 14, it says, The second day they marched around the city once and returned into the camp, so they did for six days. So the people listened to Joshua. And as we talked about last week, Joshua pictures not simply a leader, but Joshua pictures in the New Testament the greater Joshua, Jesus himself. Jesus is our leader. He is the one that not only leads us to the battle, but has already given us victory in the battle. And leaders that we follow are those who are faithful to the leader, Jesus. And we talked about last week the continued faithfulness. Day one, day two, day three, day four, day five, day six, doing the same exact thing, marching around the city just one time. That wouldn't have taken very long. Well, as we open in a word of prayer, we're going to look once again that a conquering faith is a faith in Christ. The Lord and the Lord alone brings victory. The battle is the Lord's. We are simply called to follow Jesus in obedience. So we're going to look at the second half of Joshua 6 where we see the walls, like the song says, come a-tumbling down. And we're going to see what the Lord has for us this morning. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would speak to our hearts this morning. Lord, we thank you for those this morning, for, um, for those that have publicly identified with Jesus. And Lord, they have publicly made known to us their desire to follow their leader, Jesus. And Lord, thank you that we can walk along beside them. Lord, in persevering faith, just like Israel did for those six days in anticipation of that seventh day. And Lord, I pray that you would speak to our hearts as we look at this chapter in the book of Joshua. In Jesus' name, amen. Lesson number three that we see in the battle of Jericho, not only does the Lord bring the victory, and not only do, do God, must God's people follow God's leader, but number three, lesson number three, 
God's people rejoice in the victory that He brings. We don't find joy in simply our own accomplishments. We don't find joy in the fact that we have things figured out. We don't find joy that things are going our way or according to our thoughts. We we rejoice in what God is doing. That is where our joy is to be placed. I think the reason we have a lot of discouraged and disgruntled Christians today is because joy has gone from what God is doing to what we feel that God should be doing. Verses 15 to 16 here show us that it is God and God alone who is the divine conqueror. In verse 15 it says, On the seventh day they rose early at the dawn of day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day they marched around the city seven times. So once again, the people wake up at the dawn of day and they march as they were directed. And again, we talked last week about the suspense that's building up in this passage. How it talks about in verse 13 that the people go around the city and then in verse 14 it says they did the same thing the second day and so they did for six days and and you're it's slowly building up and you once again see language of suspense here at the on the seventh day that final day they rose early not just early but it defines early at the dawn of day and they marched You can see how the suspense is building. Then we come to verse 16. What happens on this seventh day as they march around the city seven times? It says, At the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. Here is where we have the unique aspect of the seventh day. They're not just marching around the city once and returning to the camp. No, Joshua commands the people, shout, for the Lord has given you the city. Now this call to shout was before the actual walls fell down. So just as marching around the city was an act of faith, so this shouting was an act of faith. It was an act of rejoicing and an act of calling upon God to act, to do what he says. And Joshua assures them that the Lord has given you the city, therefore they are to rejoice, that to call out to him. Now I don't know about you, but I would rather shout and rejoice once I know and I see that the city has been given, whatever that city in a given context may look like, maybe it's a circumstance or, or uh, an issue or a possession or something like that, but no, it's a call of confidence. It's a call of dependence. 
Are we living in active dependence on God? You may say, yes, Pastor Adam, I'm living in active dependence on God. But we're not really living in active dependence on God, are we, when all we're doing is worrying? And we're kind of like Debbie Downer. Just like, well, I don't know, you know how things are going, or, or you've seen what's out in the world today, or, or whatever the case is. But God's got it all figured out. That's like me saying, happy birthday, Isaac. It's not Isaac's birthday, but hope you have a great day. We're going to have lots of fun today. <laughs> My actions don't line up with what I'm saying, right? Isn't that the way we are in the Christian life? Boy, I trust God. The joy of the Lord is my strength. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. We just got to keep trusting. Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. They knew the walls were going to fall by faith. They didn't know how. Certainly they didn't trust in the, the echo of their voices to make the walls crumble. This had to be the Lord's doing. For sake of time, I'm not going to take you through all these verses, but if you want to write them down and look at them later, this word given, it is so emphasized by God to, the, to, to Joshua and to the nation of Israel. Chapter 1, verse 2. Chapter 1, verse 3. Chapter 1, verse 6. Chapter 1, verse 11. Chapter 1, verse 13. Chapter 1, verse 15. Chapter 2, verse 9. Chapter 2, verse 14. Chapter 2, verse 24. Chapter 5, verse 6. In this chapter, chapter 6, verse 2. All of these passages are passages where God is either saying... I am going to give you the land, the city. Or individuals like Rahab saying, I have seen that your God is going to give you this. You see, our lack of faith is not because somehow God is lacking in the promises that He's given us. Our lack of faith in the Christian life is because We're fearful and worried that God will not follow through on those promises. We have promises of God's provision and protection and His strength all throughout Scripture. The question is, are we choosing to believe those promises or to walk in our own strength? You see, if we're going to be rejoicing as God's people, if we're going to be rejoicing as Christ's church, it's going to be because we're rejoicing in the Lord. Not in ourselves. Not in any one leader. Not in any one thing. We are rejoicing in what God is doing. And what God is doing will inevitably be bringing us out of our comfort zones just like Israel was brought totally out of their comfort zone encircling this massive city. He is the divine conqueror. 
If we are completely comfortable in life for any extended period of time, it's probably not a good sign. God is continually calling us to faith. But then we see not only is Jesus the divine conqueror, but he is to be honored as Lord. The victory is his. How that victory comes about is his. And how we respond to that victory is his. In verse 17, look at the instruction that Joshua gives the people from the Lord. Verse 17 says, And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. So in this specific situation of the battle of Jericho, how is God to be honored as Lord? Well, verse 17 shows us there's to be a total devotion to Him. God doesn't need this city But he says, the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord. And in what way is it to be devoted to the Lord? For destruction. The city was devoted to destruction. This is the the Hebrew word, kind of got to get some phlegm in your throat, but it's the word harem. The verb form is very similar, harem, they're, they're, they're connected words, and, and it's, it's, a, it's a word that talks about that which is completely devoted to the Lord, and most often this word is used in the context of destruction. Now many people have take issues in the book of Joshua, and we talked a little bit about this when we, when we introduced the book of Joshua. Um, how could a good, loving God commit a whole city to destruction. Well, let's look at very quickly at the foundation to this ban. If you turn in your Bibles, if you have a marker in Deuteronomy, if you look at Deuteronomy chapter 7. And I don't include this so much because we as believers... Or maybe struggling with this. Maybe you are, and, and this will be a help to you. But I, I'm also giving you this so that you can have an answer to those who question. But let's look at the foundation to this band, Deuteronomy 7. It says, when the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it, and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. These are all in the land of Canaan. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. There's that word, uh, harem. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, And here we have the reason, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. 
But thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their asherim and burn their carved images with fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. And the text continues. We see here the nations that are being destroyed are in defiant rebellion against God. And God as the creator has the divine right to extend judgment. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 20. Verses 16 to 18. Here the people of Israel are commanded, but in the cities of these people that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall devote them to complete destruction. And here we have all of the, the ites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded you that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods. And so, you, and so you sin against the Lord your God. Here you see once again nations whose heart is set against God. We also read, you don't have to turn there, but Genesis fifteen sixteen, Before God had ever given the land of Canaan, what did God tell Abraham? He says, prophesying of what's to come, he says, your people shall live in a land that is not their own for 400 years until the sins of the Amorites is complete. The Amorites being inhabitants of Canaan. That they were solidifying themselves in their rebellion against God and they would give an account. Now you may say, well, Pastor Adam, does that mean that we as God's people go on holy crusades now and we uh, massacre nations whose God is not the Lord? No. Because that was, in an Old Test that was in the Old Testament at a different time period where God worked through a physical nation. In the New Testament, we are a spiritual people. And in the book of Acts, what does it say? God has appointed one man to be judge of all the earth. Who is that? It's Jesus. And before we think, who is this unmerciful God? So many people just focus on the first part of verse 17 and they forget that second part. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent. You see, we need to realize the foundation to this ban is that God is God. He has the final say as the just ruler over everything. All will give an account to God, but we also have to realize the context of this act. The context of this ban, here we see, centered here is God's grace and mercy. 
You see, there was an individual and there was a family within this doomed city that would be saved. And you can look and see Rahab's repentance and the city's rebellion in chapter 2, verses 12 to 13. You remember when, when Rahab says, I know that your God is, is the one true God and He has given you this city. He's given you this land. Please remember me. What was the response to, of the, the city of Jericho to this truth? We see it in chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. They shut up the city. So that they could have a defense against this people. Even being exposed to the one true God drove these nations to rebellion against that God. Unlike Rahab's faith. If you wanted to jot down some other passages for if, if whether you are struggling or other individuals are struggling with God's actions here in the book of Joshua, again we see what is the 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 response of the nations to the one true God. Chapter 9, verses 1 to 2, when the cities around Gibeon hear that they have made an alliance with Israel, it says, as soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland, all along the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, it goes on at verse 2, they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. Look at chapter 10 and verse 5, you see the same thing. That rather than turning to the one true God, verse 5, it says in the middle there, they gathered their forces and went up with all their armies and encamped against Gibeon and made war against it. Same thing in chapter 11. The nations gather. Verse 5, the kings joined their forces and came and encamped together at the waters of Miram to fight against Israel. We see here repeatedly that even when exposed to the one true God, the response was one of rebellion. Their sins were full. And God was calling them to account. people were called in this victory to give total devotion to the Lord. This city, as the first city in Canaan that the Lord was giving them, was to be completely devoted to Him. And then we also see total consecration in verse 18. Look at this strong warning. But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction, and bring trouble upon it. This is a very strong warning. Again, four times that word harem or harem is mentioned. Literally, the warning is only you be on guard from the things devoted to the destruction lest you become devoted to destruction when you take from the things devoted to destruction. You see, God requires obedience. 
Verse 19, but all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So everything is to be destroyed and the silver and the gold and those valuable metals are to be taken and dedicated to the tabernacle. Honor is to be given to the Lord. There's to be total devotion, total consecration, because God is the one that gives total victory. Look at verse 20. So the people shouted. So they do as Joshua said earlier. They shouted. The trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout. And what happened? The wall fell down flat. Literally, it fell underneath itself. It went straight down. Then it says, so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. The victory was clear in that those great walls, the great obstacle that was before the children of Israel, in a moment, God removed the obstacle. The picture I showed you earlier gives you an example. Remember, the city was built on a mound, so as the walls fall flat, they form sort of a bridge there where the children of Israel were able, as the text says, to run straight ahead. They were able to run up the ramps of those walls. And you can see another picture where you see segments of the walls are broken down. I would think that more, more likely there'd be a lot more of the wall that had fallen than is in the picture. However, it does give you show you that there would be... Uh, that. that uh, Rahab's part of the wall that would not have fallen down because she was spared. But you can see here from the image how they would be able to run up the fallen wall to then have entryway into the city to fight. Verse 21 says, Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. That's it. That's of, of, of the great city of Jericho, as, as one person mentioned, there is only one and a half verses that talk about the triumph itself. Joshua is not wanting to highlight simply the victory. He's wanting to highlight the God who has given the victory. To show that we are called to faith. That we are called to follow God and to leave the victory to Him. One and a half verses concerning the actual going into the city and, and conquering that city. Out of a chapter of 27 verses. And just like Israel was called to move in faith that God would provide, we see that they are called to continue in that faith when God does give the victory to do exactly as God says in the victory. And that leads us to lesson number five. The last lesson, excuse me, lesson number four, that God's people 
are to share God's heart. In verse 22, Joshua remembers the spy's oath. In the midst of victory, in the midst of judgment, we see this beautiful story of Rahab. Verse 22, but to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belong to her as you swore to her. Again, we're, we're reminded of who Rahab is. Go into the prostitute's house. She was undeserving, but boy, God is faithful. Just as the two men swore, they made an oath to Rahab, and now they must complete that oath. Joshua doesn't even sit, call out a couple random guys. No, he goes right to the two men who made the oath to her and says, complete your oath. You see, God is not just the promise maker, He's the promise keeper. There is not a single promise from God that will go unkept. Now, maybe we've interpreted God's promises a certain way, and it feels like God has left promises unkept. But we must not let our expectations interfere with God's reality and God's truth. God will not leave His promises unkept. Maybe you need to say that in your mind to yourself right now. God will not leave His promises unkept. God is faithful. We see it time and time again in Scripture, and we see it in verse 23 as well. Rahab and her family are saved. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her, and they brought out all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. Rahab's faith has obviously spread. She has a, I don't know how many people were in that home, but they responded to Rahab's testimony. Again, my mind goes to John chapter 4 with the, the, the lowly woman at the well, and man, she was the greatest witness for God, for Jesus, and brought all the city out to see Jesus. And then the, the end of verse 23, Rahab and her family, they're outsiders who are clearly brought in. For a, for a time, they are put outside the camp of Israel. Probably this was because of ceremonial uncleanness, that they, they uh, were not yet able to, to be an intimate part of the camp, so they were waiting outside the actual camp until they could be properly brought in. But you see here God's heart of mercy. This truly is salvation amidst judgment. Verse 24, here we have judgment. They burned the city with fire and everything in it, only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and of iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. Verse 25, we see salvation. But Rahab the prostitute in her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. 
And she lived in Israel. She has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. All throughout Scripture, we see God's salvation amidst judgment. All the way through the entire Bible. It's just like when Jesus revealed himself to Moses and he says, you want to see me, this is who I am. I'm a God, merciful and gracious. I show loving kindness. I show favor to thousands. But at the same time, I will not leave the guilty unpunished. To the third, the fourth generation, he said. But man, God's heart. He talks about thousands versus only the third and fourth generation. Folks, this is the problem that our world has with the God of the Bible. It's not that the God of the Bible is not loving, but it is the God of the Bible in the, in the eyes of, of culture and the world is not a God made after our own image. That the God of the Bible doesn't do things that we deem as fair or unfair, as if we are the determiners of those things. That is saying that we are God. But we see here in the midst that God is holy, that God is just, that God is true, that the fact that God would spare Rahab the prostitute and her family from this judgment, a city that is to be completely devoted to the Lord, to destruction, that God would spare her of all people in her family, shows God's loving kindness. Folks, the final lesson, and we're done, that we must take with us from Joshua 6, victory is secure in the Lord. It's not an issue of maybe, or if. We see from this text victory is secure. How many times do we have to read of the greatness of God and even see the greatness of God in our lives to be convinced of this? Well, I know in my life the Holy Spirit has to do a convincing work each and every day. But folks, the evidence is here. In verse 26, Joshua curses God's enemies. It says, Joshua laid an oath on them at that time, saying, Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and builds this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation. And at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. There was a curse to the person who would rebuild Jericho. This curse actually came true in 1 Kings 16.34. We're not going to look there, but you can write that down. God's enemies are cursed, but God's leader is blessed. Verse 27, So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. This is exactly what God had promised Joshua in chapter 1, verse 5. 
chapter 3, verse 7, chapter 4, verse 14. You may say, Pastor Adam, what's the significance of this? And I think looking from the entirety of the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, not only do we see a specific story uh, that actually took place and that happened, but what is the theological, the full theological significance of what this passage is telling us? This passage is pointing us to the greater Joshua, Jesus. And like Psalm 2 shows us, the nations rage against the Lord. But who is it that has been exalted? Whose fame has spread throughout the land and ultimately will spread to every man, woman, child when all bend the knee to Jesus. This is talking about the victory that Jesus has brought. I can't help but look at Joshua 6, verse 27 and be reminded of Philippians 2. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, the greater Joshua has come and he has given us secure victory. The people of Israel under the old Joshua God did accomplish His promises. But what happened? Joshua dies. The elders die. They go after other gods and they're expelled from the land. But that greater Joshua who has come, He has secured eternal victory. He is leading us on that path as we follow Him. Let us walk in obedience where God calls us each and every day. There's going to be times that we get scared, that we get nervous, that we're called to, to, to act in faith. There's going to be times that we don't feel like following God. But let us look forward to that seventh day. That day that Christ comes again when we see that it has all been worth it. That our days that have been spent for the Lord have not been wasted. Those things that we are doing in service to the Lord that we sometimes think nobody notices or nobody cares catches the eye of God. Let us be faithful. Let us have a conquering faith in Christ. Individually, and as a church. Let's pray. Lord, as we close our time, Lord, Joshua 6 is so much more than about a historical battle with historical people and a historical miracle that You accomplished. Lord, Joshua 6 is about today. Joshua 6 is about what you have accomplished and will accomplish through Jesus. 
God, would you grant us eyes to see and hearts to believe? Father, would you give us the faith to follow? Lord, would you give us the eternal perspective that looks past the walls and looks at your promises? Father, thank you for using us as your people. But Lord, also remind us, because we are prideful and so prone to forget that we can't accomplish anything without you. So Father, help us as individuals. Help us as we are at the beginning of 2024. The year is ahead of us. We look ahead even at our annual members meeting, looking at the year behind us and the year ahead and help us to commit as a church to walk in step with You. To follow You wherever that may lead to areas of comfort or areas of the unknown. Lord, victory is secure in Christ. Guide us, we pray. In Jesus' name.